I'm James Meyer, curator of modern art at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. And I'm the curator of an exhibition entitled The Double Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900, which just opened this past weekend, and which features a work by Howard Dina Pindell, artist, author, activist, museum professional, and distinguished professor of art at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Let's turn to Professor Pindell and uh, let's ask a few questions. Would you mind telling us a little about your upbringing, your training, art, education, and museums seem to have been part of your life since childhood? I was born in Philadelphia. I was born in 1943 during World War II. And I remember rationing and pillows of margarine in the grocery store that were not yellow. They were supposed to imitate butter, but they were a kind of lard margarine with a little yellow circle in the middle of it, a pouch of food coloring. So I would go around and squeeze the, the packages to spread, this, that's my first introduction to the circle, to squeeze this yellow circle of, of food coloring into um, the uh, white lard or margarine. Um, my parents were notified by Mrs. Ozer, who was my third grade teacher. I was about eight years old. Uh, my parents met with her and she said I was very talented and told them to take me to museums, galleries, and to meet artists. My parents followed her recommendations. Uh, they took me to the Flasher Art Memorial, which had free Saturday drawing classes. Uh, I was the youngest in the in the class and I was the only person of color. The other students didn't talk to me, so I felt pretty much alone. Um, I went to art classes at University of the Arts on Saturdays, which had a, a different name then. I studied drawing and fashion illustration. I do not remember learning anything about painting, except in high school. <laughs> I also attended Saturday classes in Elkins Park, of a, a suburban area of Philadelphia, which is part of Temple University. There, I studied ceramics and drawing. I also attended the art program run by the Philadelphia school system. My parents introduced me to several artists, men and women, white and black. I was taken to the Philadelphia Museum first off for a non-art related reason. It was more archeological, there was for a very short period of time um, in their very, very small Egyptian collection, a Roman period Egyptian um, portrait head and encaustic on wood, which was attached to a mummy wrapping. Uh, the friend of the family told them that I looked like the mummy. I was immediately taken to the museum. That was my first museum experience. I later, I wandered into their excellent Duchamp collection as a child and fell in love with bride strip there on a, on a broken glass panel seen from both sides, as well as the metal grid box painted white with sugar cubes made out of marble. I think it was, uh, the title was Please Sneeze Rosalie. I also admired Renaissance painting and tried desperately to paint in that way. 
My Saturday classes did not introduce painting, but my high school classes did. Um, that is where I ran into uh, racism of one of my art teachers who would hide my work. Her name is Mrs. Cartridge. I'm sure she's no longer with us. I also took Saturday classes from an African-American art professor. He had a studio space in rural Pennsylvania, and that is where I learned to paint. There were several of us. I can only remember the name of one other student, John Dowell. Professor Cooper was a Quaker, um, which you all, we all found interesting. Uh, I started painting landscape at this point, and I'll tell you the paintings are terrible. <laughs> anyway, when I attended Philadelphia High School for Girls, in the last year, the administration provided information and help for the white women students to help them apply and get into college. They did not offer the same help to non-white students. Um, but ironically, the valedictorian for our class was African-American. She had the highest grades in the class. My parents helped me get into Boston University School of Fine Arts. In fact, I started in January. I was in it, uh, I graduated early. And so I started in January 61, uh, Boston University School of Fine and Applied Arts. I received a small scholarship. That is where I learned to paint, to really paint, uh, figuratively, I should say. I was the only African-American in my class. Later, I found out from the Black graduate students that they had a quota of one Black student a year. At one point, a white parent offered the department money if they would get rid of me. He did not want his daughter to attend the same school as a Black student. The school refused to get rid of me. My favorite teacher was Walter Murch, and he taught all of his students, regardless of race, color, whatever, um, with both concern and respect. I kind of try to model his way of teaching when I work with my students. Uh, my sculpture teacher, Lloyd Lilly, was also very supportive. He's the one that warned me about this particular parent wanting to get rid of me and to say, you know, just, you know, don't give it up, stay at it, you're really a good artist. Um, I forgot to mention that when I was a child, I was given a paint by numbers kit, which ironic as later numbers became part of my work with drawing. The subject was religious, um, Christ at Gethsemane. I uh, tried painting during that period without numbers, attempting to paint a Madonna. It was awful. I did a very bad job. Um, but I feel my exposure to painting at the Philadelphia Museum is what opened my eyes to art in general. Um, to this day, I love going to museums. Uh, that is pre-COVID. My favorite is the Metropolitan Museum in New York. As a child, I never would have expected to be in their collection. But I'm now, as an adult, uh, also in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum. Uh, the year-old child, hang on, I'm not trying to understand. Oh, the eight-year-old child could have hoped for anything, could not have hoped for anything like that. Also, I would never um, have dreamt that I would work in a museum. As a graduate student at Yale um, School of Art and Architect, I also worked in their collection of British art called the Garvin Collection. And that was while I was an MFA student at Yale. My work gradually changed from figurative to abstraction, and later I gave up oil for acrylic as I was allergic to oil. They also taught us to use lead white, which was really ridiculous because it's so toxic. 
that I was taught to use lead white both as an undergraduate and a graduate student. Um, and I just, I just heard something recently. Apparently, Michelangelo was really a character, and he lived into his 90s, but he was sick from using lead white, which is, is interesting. Well, first of all, I don't think I've ever, the interviews I've read by you, I've never um, heard your history described in such detail. So I really appreciate that. That was, sure. I think, sure. quite, quite helpful. We mentioned, we just discussed how uh, your, some of your experiences at, at university and, um, and how after Yale, you, you moved to New York City and you worked at MoMA. And you, you worked there 12 years, as I mentioned, and you, you ended up being the associate curator of prints and illustrated books. And I think you were the acting uh, head of that department. Um, when my director was away, I was the temporary acting director. Yeah. And so you had uh, quite a, a museum run there and it was 12 years. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, how would you say that experience impacted your, your art and or your perception of the art world? I was exposed to a wide range of both artists and their artworks. And on the days when the museum was closed, the public, I would wander through the galleries. Uh, I was attracted to Redon, to his color, to Marguerite for his oddness. I was slowly developing my use of abstraction uh, and the use of the circle. And that came from uh, an experience I had with my father when I was very young. Um, my father and my mother and I uh, drove to Ohio to visit my mother's mother and sisters. And uh, when they were together, my father, who loved to drive and he liked root beer. So we drove, uh, let's see, my, my grandmother was in Southern uh, Ohio. So we drove into Northern Kentucky and went to a root beer stand and we were given mugs that had on the bottom big red circles. And that meant that people of color should use this particular uh, glassware. And I asked my father why, and he explained that it was segregation and that um, white people were not supposed to drink from the same containers or use the same dishware or utensils. Um, I was kind of shocked by that, but it sort of went into my unconscious. I didn't know what to do with it. I was too young, you know, to really comprehend. Um, I loved, as I got older, I love Surratt, but do not remember seeing his work at Modern, although it's there now. I have seen it there. Uh, this is around the time I developed my video drawing series. Um, that is, while I was working at the Modern, I think it was in the 73 or 4, I developed the video drawing series. Um, let's see now. When I graduated uh, and started at MoMA, the art world was predominantly white and male, and there were not as many art galleries. The curators then often went to the artist studio. That has changed, and that the galleries do a lot of the sifting rather than the museums going directly to the artist. The art was, has, art world rather, has become more diverse. However, as the art magazines like Art in America and Art News have lost their high-end advertising, advertisers rather, as they have diversified their articles. It seems as if the only one left is a Gagosian gallery that has hired a new black director they still take out a full page ad, usually it's the back cover or maybe it's the inside of the back cover. I'm just gonna put up a, 
a little work for us just to look at, just to remind um, everyone the kind of work that uh, Professor Pindell was making in the 70s. Yeah, they're fairly large. At this time, uh, you do start or co-found uh, a gallery, uh, the AIR gallery that's well known. It's the Artists in Residence Gallery. And it was the first nonprofit artist run women's gallery in the United States and you named it AIR. Uh, could you tell us about your experience uh, with that gallery? Uh, I was selected by the core group um, of white women who wanted to start the women's cooperative because the galleries were basically only showing white male artists. Um, very few white women were shown. Um, one person, I think Castelli had her, were Hannah de Boven, who's German. Um, my slides were in a registry, an artist registry at Artist Space in the very early 1970s. They asked me to be a founding member. I was the only artist of color and one of the few unmarried ones. At an early meeting, I named the gallery AIR, which was stenciled on the outside of Soho buildings, meaning artist in residence in case of a fire. Um, I helped to renovate, physically renovate the gallery space on Worcester Street in Soho, and our landlords were the two artists, May Stevens and Rudolph Baranek. Um, one of the gallery members disliked me intensely and would say at meetings after I left the gallery that I did not know I was black. She repeated this to the group for years and may still be saying it as far as I know. A group of white feminists picketed the modern where I was working at the time uh, in prints and illustrated books. A, a Jarvis is pulled off of the department and then now it's back in the department. Um, the women demanded that I come down and join them, and I refused because they said I'm the only one who pays the bills. Most of them uh, were married. I told them only I would be paying for the bills myself. I did years later help to form the union. I was part of that group, the union at MoMA, uh, which was called Pasta MoMA, and picketed the museum twice. Uh, after I resigned from AIR, Anna Mandietta became a member before she was killed by her husband, Carl Andre. We all believe he killed her. But anyway, she apparently, according to her sister, she asked for a divorce that night. Anyway, um, she is the one who organized the exhibition, Dialectics of Isolation, where I showed my first video, Free White and 21. That was the first time it had been seen. And so now we're looking at the um, collage of the collection of the National Gallery. Mm -hmm. and with uh, hole punch paper dots, talcum powder on oak tag paper from this period. So I'm wondering how the numbering technique began. What was its significance for you? We know that strategies of numbering and counting were prevalent in conceptual practice during this period, but uniquely you materialize the numbers, you embed and scatter them into the surface surfaces of your work? Uh, my father was a mathematician and I saw him as a child writing numbers in a small gridded notebook. I love writing numbers as an adult because I saw his pleasure in writing numbers. For me, they were but about drawing rather than a logical visual uh, language. My numbers mean nothing. I call them nonsense numbering 
if I if I grew out of if it grew out of punching paper dots to make templates to spray acrylic on um, that may be one answer and that I had to punch not now there are other kinds of hole punchers I had to punch each dot and I was visited by Carl Soloway who recently passed from the Carl Soloway Gallery in Cincinnati I believe Ohio he came to my studio and I never throw anything out I had a bag of dots and he said to me how many dots are in the picture or in the bag whatever and so that's what started me counting uh, with using a, then a rapidograph pen and now we have sharpie pens that have a very strong point and are uh, archival anyway um, at the time I was living at West Beth Artist Housing that would be in the early 70s again he asked me how many dots were there and that's what started it um, I wrote them in order at first and then scrambled them and wrote whatever I felt like writing on them. At the moment, I'm working on papyrus dots for some paper pieces I'm doing with the Dudonet uh, paper organization. With uh, Dudonet, I've made about 90 pieces, um, uh, some of it using handwritten numbers, some of it using uh, letter set numbers, but they're all on circles. Um, I started for no reason whatsoever sprinkling them. I have no idea where that comes from over a thread grid, which I um, wound around the window of an archival mat. The frame shop at the modern left me um, the, the garbage, basically. That is, if you cut an archival mat, you throw out the window. And they let me keep those windows. So I had this really beautiful uh, archival, beautifully beveled uh, mat to work on. Um, let's see. Um, I added powder to soften the patina of the spray photo dry mount, and I learned that from seeing Ava Hess's work when she had an exhibition in New York City. She was still alive, and she coated her latex pieces with powder. Okay. I also used matte medium to attach numbered dots on graph paper. My first show of the dot pieces was at AIR Gallery. I used 18 by 24 graph paper that I bought at Charette, which was a supply store for architects. And here is uh, Free White and 21. Oh, when my mother grew up in Ohio, her mother would bring in various babysitters. There were about 10 children in the family. And one of the babysitters happened to be white. My mother was the darkest of the 10 children, so that when this uh, woman saw my mother's skin, she thought she was dirty and took lye and washed her in lye. As a result of this, my mother has burn marks on her arm. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, I had a teacher who was not very fond of black students. There were very few of us, possibly two, in the kindergarten class out of a class of perhaps 40. Uh, during the afternoon hours, we were given a time to sleep. Each of us had our own cot, and we were told that if we had to go to the bathroom, we should raise our hands, and one of the teachers would take us to the bathroom. 
I raised my hand and my teacher flew into a rage, yelling, I can't stand these people, and took out sheets and tied me down to the bed. She left me there for a couple of hours and then finally released me. One of the students filed a complaint, perhaps to a parent who did not know that I was black. Perhaps the child did not know or had not learned to differentiate race at that time. I later found out that that teacher was fired for bothering a student. Perhaps I was not the first one. You've noted that Free White in 21 was, quote, when the work changed, and it's when my life changed, end quote. This seminal work recently entered the collection of the National Gallery. It's a centerpiece of our double exhibition, where it appears in a gallery devoted to artists and their personae, Marcel Duchamp and Rose Vie, Adrian Piper, her mythic being, and in your tape, yourself and a composite character, a white woman in a blonde wig and sunglasses who spouts racist remarks and microaggressions and not so microaggressions. How did this work come about? What's okay. the significance of the title? Okay, I grew up in the 1940s during World War II. Uh, that was during Jim Crow and segregation. The army was segregated also. A lot of people don't know that, but anyway, it was. Um, I believe it's a quote from a movie. Free, White, and 21 is a motion picture for adults only. It came from a trial of an African-American man who was accused of rape. And there's something about the person who was charged. The white person involved said that free, white, and 21, I'm beholden to no one. Um, but I did look it up, and it turns out, Free White and 21, uh, President Andrew Jackson, elected in 1828 during slavery, said Free White and 21 is all you need to be eligible to vote. And it was used in films in the 1930s, some of which are Foolish Wives, 1937, Key, K-E-Y, 1939, Wings of the Navy, and Fall Guy in 1947, uh, basically meaning no one can stop me. So I just found that interesting that that phrase was picked up um, in the 30s, um, prior, uh, often prior to uh, World War II. The title refers to how I experienced White's response to me if I brought up the question of racism. For example, some of the white feminists did not want to discuss racism. Basically, the message was, that's not my problem, or I'm free white and 21. Some of the non-white women referred 
to the white feminists as imperial feminism, or basically whites only need apply. At one point, as I was openly speaking out about the racism in feminism, a white feminist was recruited to tell me to be cooperative. Those were her words, be cooperative. Um, my mother would send me boxes of clothes. Uh, that's what I use for uh, the filming, different sweaters. Um, she knew that my salary was low at Roma. When I was hired, the salary was 5000 a year plus a $5 raise and a nice letter in two years. That's why you had a union forming. This uh, pay was terrible. You had to attend, at the time, formal openings. So I had to make my own gowns. I had accumulated a lot of sweaters, but not gowns. So I had to do uh, quite a bit of sewing. Um, the photo backdrop paper I bought in different colors. And for every scene, I basically uh, changed my clothing. Um, the bandages are really representative of the head injury I had in the car accident. I had a concussion and um, a hip and a neck injury. The neck injury pretty much cleared up, but on my hips, like I had walking, I was walking one, maybe an inch or so higher, one leg was shorter than the other because of the impact. Uh, anyway, um, the mask was from a cosmetic treatment for cleaning the skin. Um, it was something popular a while ago where you put on this mask and it's supposed to pull up any clean your pores, whatever. Um, and it was a reference to a psychological state I had after returning from a trip to Africa. I traveled with Lowry Sims, who was the Afro-American curator of 20th century at the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, she called me and said the Met was sending her to Africa. Could you see if your museum will, will let you join me, which they did. Uh, we were there for a month and a half. It was really tough traveling, uh, east and west Africa, and it was during one of the droughts. When I came back, I was phobic. This was a psychological reaction. Um, I became phobic being so light. In fact, in Africa, people would ask me, what are you? <laughs> because they couldn't figure out whether it's black or white. The, for no reason. I mean, I'm obviously black. But anyway, the mask represented my take taking off the whiteness in my skin. And I can remember feeling like I wanted to pull off um, the whiteness in my skin. It was really weird, weird feeling. Years later, I had my DNA done and I have African, European and East Indian, Asian blood. I have DNA from Nigeria, Ethiopia, Greece, South Africa. And it's interesting, they just discovered in South Africa an earlier ancestor to humans so that um, Oduvi Duvai Gorge, East Africa, is not the earliest ancestor, but apparently they found a skull that's even older uh, in South Africa. Anyway, Zulu, Madagascar, Ireland, Sicily, Cyprus, Germany, Scandinavia, Finland, Alaska, which would be the Inuit uh, people, um, and in, in East Indian would be Delhi and South Africa. Uh, I also have Akhenazi. Ashkenazi, rather, two markers. This is on my mother's side, and uh, one marker for Sephardim, and also one marker for Palestinian. Um, I saw myself as a hybrid mixture of many cultures. I could also, I could only get my mother's DNA. That's something you'll find if you want to get your DNA. Your brother has to use 
his DNA, but he's following his father's line, but they can't give him his mother's DNA. Uh, and my father, I couldn't get it because he had passed away. So um, his relatives refused to, as I said earlier, cooperate. They were not interested. I think they were afraid of it. But anyway, I understand now that some questions are out there about what to, what they do with your DNA. I wanted to find out my First Nation and Native American uh, culture. But when I tried to get it, the test, and believe it or not, it was on Amazon, you had to supply a fingerprint. And I thought that was really questionable, so I just stopped. I didn't do any more. I wouldn't do it. Um, question, what would they do with the fingerprint? The voice of the white character sounds entirely different from your speaking voice, your natural speaking voice, separating the two speakers in the tape. Could you describe how you invented this character's voice, her way of speaking and her remarks? Well, the remarks were things that were said to me in reality. Um, I basically am a bit of a ham. So um, I, I, in fact, when I was in high school, I remember I paid this male character, Mr. Buffer in an art colony. But anyhow, um, I just played the character's voice and tone that I had experienced um, from people uh, talking to me who would say odd things, you know, odd racial things. Um, oh, I remember one dealer I had before I knew my DNA, but she wanted me to be in the gallery, but she refused to list me and people would only know that to go to her, she wanted an exclusive and I refused. And then she went into a kind of microaggression looking at my face and said, you know, you have a Jewish nose, she was Jewish. She said, but I bet they weren't married. You know, you'd run into that kind of nonsense. Uh, the irony, I do have Ashkenazi, two markers, and Sephardim, one. Um, but at that point in time, I didn't know it. But you would run into stuff like that. It's uh, really annoying. Anyway, and I remember one thing I ran into near the modern. You know, I'd have to at lunch if I wanted lunch or I wanted to shop. I had to shop around there. And um, again, that voice. Uh, I remember going into Ferragama Shoe Store on Fifth Avenue, and not the salespeople, but the white women in the shoe store started asking me, what do you want? What, what do you want here? And it was like, what? I want to buy a pair of shoes. Anyhow, so that the kind of voice that I represent is something that I have heard said to me. Well, that voice, uh, Howard Dina, it's, it's devastating. Um, it's, it really is very effective and it, it accompanies the very different appearances of the two characters, of yourself and then this character. The way you alter that voice really, um, it nails it. It brings power to the, to the whole tape. And mm -hmm. the difference between the two voices is a double and a difference. It's mm -hmm. very stark. And it's, it's very much what our show is about. Yeah, um, yeah. You've uh, described how the car accident you that you endured in 1979 severely impacted your memory. Um, one could perhaps interpret Free, White, and 21 and in part as work about memory. At least that's how I see it. Familial and personal memory. The tape opens with your re recollection of your mother's experience as a child at the hands of a babysitter who objecting to her dark complexion, washed her skin, your mother's skin, in lie, leaving burn marks on her arm. 
And then the tape is, moves through your own experiences of racist remarks and facial responses by your teachers in kindergarten, in high school, college, when you apply for jobs, and at a wedding in Maine where you're the only non-white guest. Among other things, Free White and 21 is a narration of your own life until that point as a sequence of memories of these encounters. Through storytelling, you raise a viewer's awareness of racist bias and its psychological impact on persons of color. So I see Free White and 21 as among other things, as an act of recovery and a sharing of memory by somebody whose memory has been severely impacted. Yes. Um, yes, I like what you said about memory. My memory is still not good. The head injury, uh, just old age, and uh, I take medication for the heart and, you know, it's just that I don't have a sharp memory, though they advertise all these things on television that you should take. But anyway, um, I try to write things down because um, I won't remember them. But anyway, um, uh, that you wrote the video is recovering and sharing. And I just have to turn my card. Sharing. Um, at the University of Vermont, the um, all white audience, uh, I showed through in 21, it was on a big screen, and um, a, a white woman student stood up and said, sarcastically, do you feel better now? So it's interesting that, you know, it, one talks about these things, but basically what I found at the time in the 70s, uh, no, it would be after that, it would be uh, in the 80s, that some people were still hanging on to the same sense of class, race, uh, whatever, and anything from people of color would be discounted as not their problem. Because it's a lot of hostility, you know, I think I kind of, I sometimes say, oh God, am I in solitary, solitary confinement when I get into a group of basically um, all whites or even all white women. Um, but it's interesting to see how it's changed. I, but I think it's more personally reacting it's like our country has become polarized because we have the MAGA people, the Trump people, and we have people who want it to be a democracy, put it that way. And it's, it's like this split, this divide, which now has become, I think, more fully accentuated with what's happening in our, our politics. And I'm hoping that the whole abortion rights thing will make it so people are more conscious of what's humane as opposed to what is more totalitarian and controlling. Um, so that tape, I think, has a different set of legs that for some people it will bring up other issues, even if they are not dealing with race, they may be dealing with class, they may be dealing with um, a political bias, it could be all kinds of things. I filmed it in the summer of 1980. And I remember it was one, it was in my loft on 7th Avenue and 28th Street, which is now an apartment building. It's gutted and gone. Um, and the accident was in the fall of 1979. I started seeing, I started making pieces of split postcards. I joined them together in the middle with acrylic. And this came out of my desire to try to reframe my fractured memory. In other words, cutting the guards apart with like having the accident and then painting them together, even if they don't quite work out, 
was like my trying to heal myself. Um, there were the, it was my attempt at that point to try to heal my memory. I couldn't understand, if I got a call from you then, and let's say we were friends, I would not recognize your voice. Um, when, right after the accident, I couldn't read a clock and I couldn't read a newspaper. Um, I mean, the basic, I think some of the memory issues now come from that, but I mean, I can read a clock, you know, can do most things. Um, but I think any kind of concussion is detrimental, you know, to your memory. <laughs> Free White and 21 was stolen from my um, show at an art school in Ohio. I think it was either, I think it was Cincinnati. It was stolen the first day of the exhibition. The school would not do anything about it. Apparently there was a big argument about even taking my traveling show. Um, I was getting heckling phone calls from the students calling me in New York. Uh, the director of the gallery was threatened and his camera equipment was stolen. When it was shown in Atlanta at the uh, Georgia State University Gallery, the whites complained that some of the works were hostile to whites. They wanted the exhibition to be shut down and the director refused, um, thank goodness. And he explained they wanted to show every point of view. Uh, there was a brief article about it in the um, uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The painting they objected to was the painting of Columbus, which had, uh, it was actually a beautiful painting. I used a lot of color in it, but it talked about all the indigenous groups that he had affected. And the painting in my show now, which is at Cambridge University, it's a new version of it and it's devastating. I have silicone casts of hands because one of the things Columbus did to the indigenous people, the Taino and the Arawak, was to cut their hands off if he, they didn't bring him gold. The hands, um, just my assistants and I, uh, one of them set up a way of our casting our hands in silicone. So my hand is there, uh, there are about four or five people whose hands are there. And then the text, Columbus, you can see the top, and then it talks about how he trained his dogs to eat human flesh. I mean, there's all such a horrible stuff. Um, and the other one is about the three little girl, the four little girls that died in the, uh, uh, what is it? Birmingham, Alabama bombing of a church kindergarten. And then the burned objects represent the towns that um, were burned down uh, by the whites. And um, also, well, like Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, that was in 1921. They killed 300 people. They're still now looking for mass graves. Oh yes, in Atlanta, very interesting. They withdrew. Okay, the people wanted my show shut down, which didn't happen. But there was a exhibition, no, no, there was a theater event which had to do with um, a positive view of homosexuality. And so the same group of people or the, from the same area ordered that the show be shut down. And the money from the government that paid for the show was given to the police. And I thought that was like outrageous. Um, Within the feminist community, uh, the reception was mixed in terms of the tape. The first time when we made it, the young woman who helped me with the technical stuff said it was disruptive. That is when she tried to apply it, uh, take it to an ex a, a competition to be viewed and they wouldn't even touch it. Um, I had a crew of two white women and um, the young woman who was head of the crew was Latino. Uh, I think her name was Marina Leno. Um, they totally, totally supported the, the uh, project.
which was, I was very touched by that. Um, we don't have that much more time. And before we go on, uh, let's, let's open this up to our uh, audience. And, and if anyone has any questions. So here's one question, um, uh, Howard Dina. Yep. What advice would you give to a young woman artist? What advice? The main thing is don't give up. We're, I think we're headed to some very difficult times with the country so polarized um, between the right-wing conservatives and um, middle and far left um, uh, people who want to see change for positive and the others wanting to go back. I mean, I had heard that the, um, uh, the Supreme Court might be considering uh, controlling contraception, making mixed life, mixed race ma marriages illegal, and also um, gay couples illegal in terms of marrying. And that's like so such a huge leap backwards. So I would say, how can I explain it? Because it's different. I mean, if you're white, you have white um, privilege. If you're not white, white, you don't have white privilege. But the way that it's setting up, it seems like the division is going to make you choose if you're white between being with the people who are pro-racist or whatever, or being with a mixed group of people that are white and black and, and you know, indigenous and, and Asian, you know, just all different kinds of people. So I would say don't give up and try what I try to do, and I'm sometimes not good with it because I have so much to do, is to write down what is happening. I call them day pages, and I have a little heading, and then I try to put in the date and what happened on that day. So if I have any conflict, you know, I can kind of relook at it and see how I felt at a, a certain time. There also are, but I don't know if they still exist, there are 12-step programs that are for women only or for men only. Um, but that's one way to hear what other people are going through. Um, but again, I don't know, because I used to go to 12-step programs, but they're pre-COVID. I don't know if they still exist because they would have been stopped because of the uh, virus. Um, another thing is try not to, I know we have to be careful with COVID and being around a lot of people but try not to isolate yourself and find people of like mind to be friends with rather than being in a position where you're always adversarial with the people around you. Um, and that can be rough with um, young people whose families may be with MAGA and they aren't, you know? So try to find like-minded people if you can. And being in school kind of helps you because you're already guaranteed a group to choose from. But if let's say you've graduated, you know, you might even be married and have children, there may be some way to reach out. But I, I never married. I didn't because I decided, even as young as 12, that because of the racism I was dealing with, because you always people were always staring at you with hate, uh, that I did not want to bring a child up in that environment. And I think personally now I'm glad that I'm too old to have children. Um, it's just a, such a seriously difficult and dangerous. I mean, when you think of all the shootings that have been going on. 
um, that makes it a very dangerous environment. Um, I don't know. I would, I would basically, even if you decide you want to see a therapist, someone to talk to, that can be helpful as long as you trust the therapist. But with that, you need to deal with getting positive recommendations from people. If they think there's someone you can trust, fine. But try not to isolate yourself. Uh, but on one hand, the news can be very discouraging. On the other hand, you don't want to be off out of the loop because you just don't know. Um, who knows? Uh, horrible, horrible, but Trump may win again. And it will be really bad um, because then that uh, Ukraine is going to be in a terrible mess. And I think our country will be in a terrible mess because of the groups that are being encouraged to be more active and more aggressive. So I would say don't give up is the bottom line, but try to protect yourself and be around good people. Sounds good. Um, another question. So we know that that character, the, your persona in Free White and 21 is a composite of certain uh, feminists, white feminists you encountered, artists. Um, who? One of the questions we received is, what artists were supportive of your work in the 70s? Who was your community? See, that's confusing for me because what I found was because I worked at MoMA, someone could easily say they're friends because they want to get close to MoMA. So um, Museum of Modern Art, when I say MoMA, that's Museum of Modern Art. Um, and so the change came when I, you know, I resigned. I was like up to here. <laughs> Uh, my department head was very difficult, and I just, you know, I thought I wanted to get out of their environment, especially after what happened at Artist Space. Not Artist, yes, it was Artist Space um, with uh, Newman and the End Drawing Show, and that really split the art world. Um, I then started to see who my friends were because suddenly people who were friendly disappeared. They were gone because I couldn't supply for them any sense of possibly the modern would do something with my work. So that became really crucial to me in terms of, is this person being friendly to me because it was the modern, or is it because they're really my friend? Now, since a lot of people don't work at the modern, that may not be an issue uh, or wouldn't be an issue. Um, the person that retains my friendship or the, our friendship continued was with Anna Mendieja. And um, I mean, it's kind of creepy to say this, but when you have a head injury, you can become more sensitive than you want to be. And I remember Anna and Pearl took me out for my birthday. This was in April and the accident, I think was like October of uh, 79. And the dinner was 1980, April. And, you know, I was sitting with them and I still was so sensitive. This is gonna sound really nuts. and. Um, I was sitting there and then this thought went right through my mind and it was, he's going to kill her with his hands. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what do I do with that? You know, it's like, oh my God. Um, and one thing that became a nuisance for me is when I was working with figurative painting plus text and doing things about autobiography, there were premonitions in the work. And 
that scared me to death. So I stopped doing that kind of work. Uh, I think the uh, an interesting one is there's a figure, my figure uh, sort of floating, and then it has like this, it looks like um, an elephant tusk out of my head. Well, apparently I have DNA in Benin, and that's what the sculpture looked like. You had the bronze head with the tusk coming out of the head. Um, another um, premonition, in fact, I swear now, that's <laughs> the same, no, it's a different painting called Scapegoat. And in the center, there's this screaming, raging figure, I mean, uh, the head just screaming. I took it from a combination of images of lobsters and whatever, but it comes up not as a fish or a crustacea, um, but the screaming head and the word lies, 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 text. And I think it's Trump. I think that that painting had some representative Trump and that painting was from 1990. Um, then at the bottom of the same painting, I had put my head on the side and I traced my head and it came out like a child. And I painted it black with a silhouette. And then in 1997, this was 1990, we have Carol Walker. I've never, ever used a silhouette. And I was one of the um, outspoken people about the um, potentially racist stuff in her work. Um, anyway, so I tried to avoid having any kind of premonitions in my work. Um, I know that can be a part of us, but I don't accept that side of me because it's scary. It's very scary. One last question before we go. Um, one of our uh, audience members was curious, uh, what younger artists, black or otherwise, uh, impress you? Uh, who do you look at? Well, there's one um, artist who's part Lakota. Her name is Athena Latoka. She was one of my former students at Stony Brook. She's done really well. Um, she was in Rome for one of those shorter term uh, Prix de Rome's. Um, she's an amazing artist. She's absolutely amazing. Uh, she works with painting, not with brushes, but with stones and bricks and rocks. And her pieces can be as big as 80 feet long. Uh, she also uses lead. And I worry about that when she uses it because, you know, lead is toxic. Uh, and she always says, you know, she's careful, but uh, she molds it in some way. Um, she now got, just got back. She was invited. People are hearing about her and inviting her to, there was a residency, a short-term one-week residency between scientists and artists in Italy. And so she went back for that. So she is gaining a, an amazing reputation. I would say she's the main person um, that I, I look at in terms of watching her grow mm -hmm. uh, because her work, her work is incredible. There's also another um, indigenous artist, uh, Jean-Claude C. Smith, and I find her work very interesting in that you learn from it. I like learning from art. And she deals with the um, history and conditions around being indigenous. Um, some of the other artists, oh, like for example, Helen Ramsaran makes small bronze pieces. She's starting, she's older than I am. She's starting to get some play finally. Um, oh, I always, James, Carrie James Marshall, the painter, mm -hmm. he's not a young artist. He's younger than I am, but he, he's not a young, young artist. He's, I love his work. Mm -hmm. 
it's, it's huge, it's monumental, and it presents black people in a positive light rather than a stereotypical light. But I would say the young artist that I am looking at now, and I've been following her for years, is Athena Latoka. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to hear a lot about her work because it's it's amazing. Like she had one piece that had subway noises in it, um, but the piece was maybe eighty feet long or wide. And I remember visiting her in her studio. She has to find a bigger studio because it's not big enough for her. Uh, she did have a residency at the World Trade Center, although I would not ever want to go back to the World Trade Center, even if it's a new building. And she had a huge space, <clears throat> but now she has to find a space where she can live and work because she's constantly having to commute. I, I would. She is my favorite artist at this point. Uh, who I'm trying to. I'm trying to keep up with what she's doing, and I want to give her as much support as I can. Is uh, she's really phenomenal. She's originally from Alaska. Mm. Yeah, her her mother lives in Alaska. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's good to good to know about her. And Joan, quick to see Smith, is an artist uh, we've been working with. We acquired one of her paintings, and oh, that's she's great. curating an exhibition uh, in our mm-hmm. Tower series, uh, which Ooh. will be coming up this coming year. And uh, isn't that great? And and we have also done an exhibition with Kerry James. Oh, great. Um, in the tower. And we're thrilled to have um, Free White and 21 featured um, in the double show. And yeah. we're, we're so um, delighted that you, 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 you spoke to us this evening. Um, I think yeah. it means a lot to everyone who's here. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Pindell. Uh, we, we've loved talking to you. Your, your answers have been meticulous and thoughtful and we've learned a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for including me. My, our pleasure, our honor. Mm-hmm.